Okay, I'm going to read the scripture and then pray. Um, if you follow along, it should be up on the board or in your Bibles, Luke 9, 18 through 25. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For, those who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or for, forfeits himself? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for um, the gathering and the community that we have here and the time that we can come fellowship and worship you. Lord, we just invite your Holy Spirit into this place, into this time, Lord. Um, I pray that you would soften our hearts to hear the message that Brian brings this morning um, and that your word would be spoken um, and that hearts and lives would be changed. Uh, Lord, we love you this morning and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. I think I'm on. There I go. All right. We are uh, starting a, a new series this morning, and it is called uh, Discipleship, uh, the Cost and Beauty of Following Jesus. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges we have as a, as a church community is, is dealing with abstract words, uh, and, and, and uh, churches and pastors like these kinds of, word, these kinds of words a lot, even though um, people really are unsure what they mean. Uh, and a good example of that is the word discipleship. And um, here, here's the simple and easy and accurate uh, understanding. It means that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, Jesus, during his time here on earth, would call people and say to, to follow me and to be my disciple and, and think through what that means. And so that's what we want to do here for the next few weeks as, <clears throat> as carefully and as clearly as we can. We want to think about this because what happens is there are so many ideas and views of life, and we all have them. We all have different opinions and, and um, questions and answers about life and, and how we deal with the problems of life and the solutions and how we view things. <clears throat> when I was in college, one of the things that I used to love to do, and, and um, my friends really didn't like it that much, but um, this is a long time ago in the early 90s, and I think, I don't know exactly, but I think, Third Street Promenade was kind of newer in the, in the early 1990s. And we would go down there when I was in college, and there was a bookstore that was just really cool. And I love bookstores. And in the back, though, they had this area where people would come and read and share ideas about life. And there was this little, you know, micro exchange of ideas and, and community. And it was just, it was cool. It was, it was my, little, um, my little version of, of uh, you know, early 1970s America um, and, and protesting the Vietnam War. And, you know, you want to go to college and, and hear all these different ideas and think through things. And so um, I've naturally been intrigued and, and want to be thinking about life and how we view life and how we actually live our lives. And not just in an abstract way, but in an everyday life and how um, our views affect how we live our lives. And so... Um, we're going to look at Luke chapter 9 this morning and look at um, some really important questions about 
Christianity. And so here's what we want to do. Is, is how do we know if Christianity is true? Um, it, and the most basic and straightforward way to deal with that is to look at the person of Jesus Christ. So no matter what anyone says about Christianity, uh, the followers, church, Catholic, Protestant, all these different um, viewpoints, the safest way and the most accurate way is to look at who the person of Jesus Christ is. And that's what happens in, this, uh, in the narrative here of Luke chapter 9. And the question begins with the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? And what happens is we have to try to be thoughtful about understanding the culture and the time that we live in because what happens is we normally apply at least a couple of questions to life. And number one is when we think about our life and view in Jesus Christ is the question is this. Is Jesus relevant to my life? The other question, though, that's uh, equally and more important, maybe, is, is it true? So two questions that are related to a life view. Is it meaningful to my life? And then is it true? And what happens, though, there, there's a real danger if we don't think carefully about the truth question. There are so many things in life that are relevant um, and, and meaningful, but the question you must ask also, is it true? All right, so here's, this is what's interesting. I came across an article. This was, um, it, it wasn't an article necessarily. It was from, though, the American Cancer Society, and I was reading about placebo effects. All right, here's, from the American Cancer Society, here's what they say a placebo is. A substance or a treatment that looks like a regular treatment or medicine, but is not. It's an inactive look-alike treatment. Even though the placebos don't affect the disease at all, it somehow makes people feel better. Now here's what's interesting. According to the American Cancer Society, approximately 30% of people will have some short-term relief to their symptoms. So if you think about this for a second, placebo effect in our body. People can take whatever it is, the sugar pill or whatever, have serious significant effects. In, in American Cancer Society, we all know that the effects of cancer and the treatment of chemo has tremendous effects on our body. The American Cancer Society is saying that up to 30% of people can experience some satisfaction because they believe that this pill is going to bring some help, even though it's a sugar pill, even though it's nothing. It's interesting. So short-term relief, just because you believe so strongly that this thing can bring help. Well, as much as we all freely admit in, in the physical reality of the world that we live in, what I want to propose to you is that, that the spiritual reality of life is just as true, and that there are such things as spiritual placebos, that there are things in this world that you can apply to your life that will meet the needs of your life, that will make you feel good, that will make you feel important, that will make you feel loved and secure and happy. But the question is, are those things true? Listen, there's so many things, uh, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a good job, good friends, all these things. And there's even strange things. 
that can make us feel good, make us feel important, that can be a placebo. So the question is that we have to wrestle with today, and, and I believe this, that the question of truth, is it truth, is pushed aside today culturally for the idea is how does it make me feel? And I'm saying to you, there are lots of things in this life that can make you feel good. That there are lots of spiritual placebos. Living in Malibu, all of the things that we have access to in our lives can function as a way of satisfying our soul. They can satisfy that temporary desire to feel uh, fulfilled in life. But think about this for a second. Um, hypothetical situation where you have a terminal disease and you're taking a placebo, and, but you feel great. It's making you feel good. It's not dealing with reality. The reality is you have a serious disease. And so when we apply this to our spiritual lives, we need to think really carefully about who Jesus Christ is. And so the question then is, is Jesus Christ true? Who is this person? And that is the question that's being asked here in Luke chapter 9. So we'll just we'll work our way through this um, in a timely manner this morning. But the question is, in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, it says this, that Jesus is with his disciples, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And so that's the question. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Well, Jesus is going to answer that question, and, and Peter, Peter is getting along on the right trail, and he says this, uh, verse 20 says, but then he said to them, the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, as we know, he's kind of the guy that likes to speak right up, and he says, <clears throat> you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. And what we have to understand, we, we want to understand this in its historical context, that this is the idea that, that Jesus is the triumphant one. He is the king. He is like being friends with the most powerful guy. So we all like that. We all feel a little bit extra important. If you're friends with somebody, if you know somebody that gives you access in life, whether it's power or affluence. So Peter's like, I'm, I'm liking this. I'm in the inner circle of this guy who's drawing huge crowds. He's healing people. He's doing things. And I'm on the inside. So people in the crowd here have these expectations, and Peter's getting closer to an understanding of why Jesus comes. But then, the next verse, he says this. Jesus says this, but he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. All right, and here's where it gets interesting with Jesus. The expectations are going up about who this person is. <clears throat> and then Jesus says this, <clears throat> excuse me, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed <clears throat> and on the third day be raised. Now this just completely destroys everything that Peter thinks and hopes about who Jesus is. Listen, here's what, he's, here's what Jesus is saying, is that the king is going to die. Kings don't die. Winners win. Winners accrue power. Winners gain attention. They gain significance. And Jesus is saying this, I am the anointed one, I am the Messiah, and I'm going to die. Peter has no way of thinking about this. This is, this is, this is the opposite of, of his way of thinking. 
Why did Jesus come? So he professes that he is the Messiah. And he says that he comes to die. Here's, let's think about this for one second, <clears throat> about the identity of Christ. Now, um, we probably all know that, that people have written books and books and books about who Jesus Christ is. So I'm going to attempt to give you one answer of many in a very short amount of time to try to get us to thinking about who Jesus Christ is. If you do any, um, a little bit of research about most influential people in the world, Jesus is always in the top three or five. In fact, um, there's, there are books written about world religions. Um, and what, what often happens when you read books about world religions, there's two people that come to the top as maybe, some, as maybe the most significant people. One is Jesus Christ, and the other is Siddhartha Gautama, or, or Buddha. These two people are often recognized as the two most influential spiritual people in the history of the world. And so we should think about this for a second, right? We should, we should be willing to think about this. Um, if, let me give you a hypothetical here. Let's just say hypothetically, you got this really nice professional looking um, letter and it had some uh, well-known law firm, really professional logo with a law firm, and then it had your name hadn't written on it. Now, some of you might, I'm not sure this is a good example here in Malibu or not, some of you might, might like immediately throw in the trash, <laughs> but you might be a little bit curious, right? So let's say you get this hypothetical letter from this significant law firm and your name is written right there, handwritten, and you open it up. And in the letter is this paragraph that says, your uncle Albert, your step-uncle Albert has left you five acres of oceanfront property just two miles up the road here, Incidental Bluffs, given to you. <clears throat> All you have to do is call this law firm, talk to them, confirm that you are who you say you are, sign it, and the property is yours. Are you going to investigate? Well, kind of the obvious answer is yes, right? The obvious answer is yes, that we're going to at least make the phone call. And so here's what I want to propose to you. Again, culturally, we are all about relevant because that will improve your life. That's going to make your life better. You're going to have lots of friends. You're going to have fun parties. You get to surf and play on the beach all, all you want. Relevance. But, listen, we all know this. There are lots of people that have really nice houses and nice properties and all these kinds of things that are unhappy, broken people. Is it true? What will truly satisfy? And so what I want to say to you is, this: the idea of investigating who Jesus Christ is, is worth your time. If, if he says who he claims he is, is it worth your time to investigate? Now let me give you one other thing that's just really interesting, okay? Um, a couple of examples of Christ. One is the story of this blind beggar. Okay, he's a blind beggar, and, and he calls out for Jesus, and Jesus heals him. And do you know how the blind beggar responds? He begins worshiping Jesus Christ. The, the sinful woman in the Gospels who comes to Jesus, and she falls at his feet and begins crying and weeping and using her hair to dry his feet and begins kissing his feet, 
something strange is going on with this concept <clears throat> that people worship Jesus. Now, if you think about this for a second, just apply this to our own lives for a second. If somebody drops to their knees and begins kissing your feet and saying worshipful type, type things to you, if you allow that to happen, there's something really weird with you, right? We would all say that. You'd be like, hey, get up. No, 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 no. You don't know who I am. You'd be like, get up. Anyone that worships you and you allow that to happen, we would all say you're crazy. You're weird. Okay? So this happens all the time. I, um, occasionally, I'll try to turn on the news for a second. And there was a story this week on CNN, CNN about a documentary about um, a religious cult sect thing that, that was happening in the 1980s here in Southern California, and they had to leave to Texas, and now they're in Hawaii. And it was just super, super bizarro, okay? And the guy encouraged people to worship him. You need to worship me. So anytime that happens, like, okay, normal people, you're like, something's weird about you if you want someone to worship you. Either the person worshiping you and the person receiving the worship is super weird. We know that. In fact, uh, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, you know what's really interesting about him? People tried to worship him. And do you know what he said? He said, no, do not worship me. Follow my teaching. He even knew that you're a super weird person if you call people to worship you. And you're a super weird person if you're worshiping another human being. But Jesus allowed people to worship him. He allowed people to worship him. So who is he? That's what you have to think about. Is he another crazy person? So C.S. Lewis, he, you know, years ago he presents that. He either is the son of the living God or he's a super freak. Who is he? And that's what you've got to think about. As likely and as quickly as you would investigate a lawyer wanting to give you property, will you investigate who Jesus Christ is? <clears throat> World scholars for thousands and thousands of years, well, for the last couple thousand years, regularly appoint Jesus as one of the leading people in the history of the world who has changed the world. And think about his followers. He has had some kind of impact on the world. Let's go on. What did he come to do? He came to suffer and die. This anointed man, the Messiah, came to suffer and die. Well, why did he have to do that? This, this is his mission. Why does he have to do this? Why did he have to come and suffer and die? It's really important we understand that. And that is this. Is that real forgiveness costs something. Here's one of the things that created massive amounts of problems for Jesus. In fact, it's one of the things that gets him killed. Is he announced the forgiveness of sins. That he was coming to say, I forgive you. And understanding forgiveness is significant. The greater the offense, the greater the cost to cover the debt, the greater the suffering. The greater the problem, the greater the debt, the greater the suffering. I've used this example before, and I'll just use it briefly again. If you invite me over to your house, and as I walk in your house and I trip and break your lamp, um, you have a couple problems now. Number one, you can live in a dark house. Number two, you can fork out money to pay for a new bulb, or you can ask me to pay for it since I broke it. Someone's, someone's got to cover the debt. Someone's got to suffer. You either suffer the loss of money 
or you suffer by living in darkness. And here's what Jesus understands. He understands the debt that we all have. And the debt is so significant. It's not a light bulb. It's called our sinful nature. And it's so serious, it's so significant, that it costs Jesus Christ his life. And so he understands the seriousness and the significance of the debt we owe. And if you think about that for a second, that the only way the debt could be paid is by giving the life, of giving your life for another. And that is the extent of God's love. We know this and we're familiar with this, but God sent his son to die because he loves you. And the problem is so great and so severe that it cost him his life. So as we think through this a little bit this morning, there's a lot of things to think through. The next question that Jesus asks is this, verse 23, and he says this, and he said to all, so he's gathering, a, there's, it was the disciples, now it's a, um, a smaller group again, and Jesus makes this invitation to everyone. And this is what it means, then Jesus is going to bring clarity of what it means to be a follower. What does it mean to be a disciple? And Jesus says these things that are foundational of what it means to be a Christian. So uh, I began by saying that we must look at the person of Christ. And there are so many things that will distract us from really understanding what genuine Christianity is all about. I'm proposing to you that you must look to the person of Jesus Christ and what he says. And here's what he says. He says, Here, here's what it means to be a follower of Christ. He says this, consider these three things. Number one, he says, if anyone would come after me, uh, if you have the NIV, it would say, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone wants to be my follower, let him, number one, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Number one, he says, you must deny yourself. And the danger of reading something like this is, is we trivialize this, the idea of denying ourselves. Now, we have a basic understanding, and I'll start basic, and if I stop there, then I would be trivializing it as well. But here's something that we can all understand as far as self-denial. If we go out to dinner, and we have a nice dinner, and then we ask for some dessert, and you get some ice cream, and you enjoy your ice cream, um, hopefully it's, it's, it's one scoop of ice cream. You don't say, hey... I need another round of dessert, need another round of dessert, all right? You show some self-denial, all right? The amount of food you eat, the amount of alcohol you consume, hopefully we understand that self-denial means you're saying no to yourself for a good reason. We all do this. We don't feel like going to work, but you go to work. You don't feel like going to class, but you go to class. So self-denial at that level is something we all understand but it's much more meaningful than just saying no to an urge that you have. That's not exactly what Jesus is, is talking about. The word denial is a very strong word. You must repudiate yourself. That you must rid yourself of your self-centeredness. Self-denial is not denying little luxuries to yourself. It's a regular lifestyle of denying yourself and your self-centeredness and understanding that there's something more meaningful and significant. It's giving up the idea that you feel like you deserve things, that you're entitled to things. To deny yourself 
is the idea that you are not entitled to special treatment, that you are better than other people. Jesus says that you must be willing to wrestle with and think through what self-denial is. And it's not just saying no to little things. It's denying your self-centeredness. And he goes even further. He says next, he says, take up your cross. And the temptation is to trivialize the cross as well. Here's what we have to do to try to really understand what Jesus is talking about. Is you have, and here's, just, here's a, a foundational principle for interpreting the Bible and understanding the Bible. Is you have to try to understand the historical context. of What did it mean during this time period? And to take up your cross was this during this time period. It meant that you were a convicted criminal. That you are a convicted criminal and you are dragging a wooden cross to the place of death. This is not, this is not the happy time that Jesus is saying, like, come on, join the club. Join the fun club. Join the Christian fun club. He's saying, no, you have to understand what, understand what it means to be my follower. You're convicted a convicted criminal and you're carrying your cross to the place where you are going to die. It's, it's, it's literal language in the time and place and it's a metaphor for us to understand the seriousness of what Jesus is talking about if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Taking up the cross means you see yourself as a condemned criminal and what are you putting to death? What is he referring to? You're putting to death your self-centeredness. You're putting to death your pride. You're putting to, to death um, your self-pity. You're putting to, de to death your self-centeredness. You're putting to death that desire to put yourself at the center of the story. You're putting to death your oversensitive ego. Jesus uses this language, this graphic language of what it means to be his disciple because he knows that something within us that sinful part of us is so real and so destructive um, it's hard for us to think about this and, and, and be honest and, and wrestle with this but here's the reality and, and this might not be all that helpful but it, it sticks in my mind we um, Years and years ago, we, we bought some property up in Washington. It's completely remote, and it's worth pretty much nothing. So don't think I'm describing some really cool thing. Um, it's, it's just, it's beautiful. It's kind of pretty, though. But on the property, like 10 years ago or so, we cleared it. My friend had a bulldozer, and he let me play on it, and I got to knock down all these trees and bushes and stuff. And uh, the property, though, regularly grows back. Like, instantly. I went up uh, just a couple a week ago to visit my mom, and I wanted to go look at the property. And it is as out of control as I've ever seen it, with blackberry bushes that are like 8 to 10 feet tall, and they're huge thorns, and they're just like a nightmare. And here's what happens. They don't stop. No matter what you do, they don't stop. They keep coming back. They keep coming back. And here's the point. Within me and within you is a little blackberry bush of sin that is so radical and so undying that it will always come back. And so Jesus uses this language 
for us to understand the nature of the battle, to understand the nature of the spiritual life, that we must daily, Luke says daily, pick up your cross and take it to that place where you must die. And then, Jesus says this, he says, follow me. When you get to that point in your life, when you no longer see yourself as the one who's in control, when you get to that point in your life when you're broken and you understand that life with you at the center does not work and you want to follow Christ, when you want to surrender your life to Christ, he says, he says follow me. Give your life to me. And here's the beauty part. I said in the beginning that discipleship, it's this, it's this word. It's the cost and the beauty of following Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus says. Here's the beauty part. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus says, you're going to have a beautiful life if you are willing to put to death your own self-centeredness, your self-pity, your habit of putting yourself at the center of attention, your habit of making the world evolve around you, and you give your life to me, my promise is that I will give you a beautiful life. And that's how the church starts. It starts with this little group of people that are nobodies. That are nobodies. But get this. That they want this. That they want Christ. And they're willing to put to death their self-centeredness. We, we, you cannot underestimate the power of following Jesus Christ. Of putting to death your own sin and following Christ. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is the story of Rosa Parks. And I know you've heard of this before, but what, here's what you have to understand is that Rosa Parks, and I, and I mean this in a positive way, was a nobody. She was a seamstress. She sat in her, in her, in her, her went, went to work every day and, and did seeming things, <laughs> sewing things. Whatever they do, I, don't even, I kind of know what that is. But at, at one point in her life, at one point in her life, she took a stand for justice. A seamstress took a stand for justice and started a revolution. And it's a picture <clears throat> of Christianity that when people when people understand the true nature of who Jesus Christ is and what it truly means to be his follower, a revolution happens. And the revolution is marked by God's kingdom of alternative values, of love, of peace, of contentment, of joy, of a life with a purpose, of life with meaning, a life that is not preoccupied with self-fulfilling relevance of just my own life and making me happy. Listen, here's the secret. The most miserable people that I know are people who are all about making themselves happy all the time. And I want to say, stop. You need to view yourself as a condemned criminal, and that needs to die, as the words of Jesus. And that's, that's what I wrestle with. Jesus says that this is the mark of a genuine believer, that you're willing to wrestle with this. And Peter and the disciples are like scratching their head going, you're changing everything I thought about you. I thought you were going to make my life great. I thought you were going to give me affluence and power and security and safety and all these great things because you're the Messiah. You're going to kick out the Romans. You're going to create, create power for me. 
And Jesus says, no, I'm going to die. And I want you to come with me. You follow me. And I'll give you a beautiful life. A life eternal. That's what John, uh, the end of John, the Gospel of John, Jesus says that to know me is to know eternal life, that I give this to you. A beautiful life. A life of security and stability found only in Jesus Christ. Uh, one of my favorite um, people that I, that I regularly read is uh, a guy named Jim Elliott. And we have a quote from him, and, and he kind of summarizes this. And maybe you've seen this before. But he says this, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's something for us to think through and as far as our day-to-day relationship with Jesus Christ. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep. Right? So we're giving, up, we're giving up our egos, our self-centeredness, to gain Christ, which you cannot lose. You cannot lose Jesus Christ. He is yours forever. We're going to pray. I'm going to pr- close in prayer, and uh, Lockwood will come up. And we're going to uh, have communion this morning. And I just want you to think through the idea of why Jesus Christ came. And he came motivated by his love for you. If you have come to the point in your life when you have decided to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I invite you to come to communion. And if you're not at that place yet, that's okay. That's a personal decision between you and the living God. And I ask you to take this time to reflect and just think about who Jesus Christ is. Communion is a time to remember the broken body and the blood of Jesus Christ, motivated by his love for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning, and uh, I pray that we would be willing to think through and, and see what it truly means to follow you, to see who you truly are, the one worthy of worship. And uh, Father, I pray if there are people here this morning that, that don't know you, that they would uh, experience your love, your peace, uh, your openness. Thank you so much for your grace. Your, our, our undeserving uh, benefits that you give us through your love. We ask these things in the name of your Holy Spirit. Amen.